Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. An expert in American legal history, John Fabian Witt joined Yale Law School in 2009. In this, his inaugural lecture as the Alan H. Duffy Class of 1960 Professor of Law, Witt discusses the puzzling history of the laws of wars, dating back to the time of the Civil War and the wartime instructions known as Lieber's Code. This lecture took place on February 28, 2011 at Yale Law School. Yeah, the art of the introduction is one of the uh, great arts of the Yale Law School, but I'd never truly appreciated how terrifying it was until it was directed <laughs> at me. Uh, Robert, it's been fabulous to uh, uh, come back to the law school under your deanship uh, to get to know you better, uh, become friends with you, and I think in the next year become co-authors with you. Uh, so thank you, thank you so much. Uh, the institution that Robert presides over it has the extraordinary virtue of being both the best functioning institution I've ever uh, been a part of and also the least rule-bound institution I've ever been a part of. And that's a kind of amazing combination if you think about it. Uh, I I'm enormously grateful for the array of people who help who've helped guide me through the happy anarchy of the place. Alita Lynch, uh, I think the, uh, the world's finest faculty assistant uh, and also just really fun to be with. Thank you, Alita, for guiding me through the um, uh, the, uh, the forests of, of the uh, law school. Beth Barnes has put an enormous amount of work into uh, creating this event today. I'm enormously grateful to her for her characteristic cheer uh, and for replying to emails that come only at the time of some of my most idiosyncratic colleagues. Beth seems to be constantly uh, uh, on, uh, on email. Um, uh, Mike Thompson and Kevin Rose, who create the, the building uh, and make everything work, I'm enormously grateful to them. Um, uh, and also to the students that I've had here at Yale Law School. It's one of the great virtues of the Yale Law School that its students are energizing uh, and, and constantly challenging. Um, I've had a small platoon of research assistants helping me with the work that I'm engaged in now, and I'm enormously grateful to them. Sometimes I think that rather than, than me talking today, we should just have a, a committee of them telling you the kinds of things that they found, or perhaps at the end of my talk, they'll tell me if I, if I got it right. So thank you uh, to, to, uh, to this, my students. It's a special honor to give this with the Duffy family here. Uh, I got the chance to spend an afternoon with Dan and Lucy in the fall uh, and learned a lot about Alan, uh, Alan H. Duffy. Uh, one of the things that became clear is that Alan was a heterodox lawyer. Uh, he didn't brook orthodoxies. Uh, he didn't uh, get in the ruts of any expected way of being a lawyer, and he had passions about the law. And as I've thought about our afternoon together over the last several months, uh, it's come, become pretty clear to me that this is a great way to think about being a scholar in the law, to reject orthodoxies, to have passions, um, and, and to pursue them. So I'm enormously grateful for the, uh, the, um, the Duffy family being here today. It's a special treat to give this talk with my family here today. Um, the, uh, uh, my, my mother, Loretta, uh, has been my moral compass since forever. I'm enormously grateful to her for coming. And my, my father, Thomas, I think you'll understand pretty much everything there is to understand about me being a law professor who does history if I tell you that he has a graduate degree in history from Harvard, that he's a lawyer, uh, and that he teaches land use at the Penn Law School using, I think, Bob Ellickson's casebook. So there's a, a, a New Haven uh, a connection here, too. Um, uh, Annie Murphy-Paul is my model uh, in writing, of all things. She's the best writer I know. She combines erudition. Uh, and, and intellectual gravitas uh, uh, with enormously, with extraordinarily good, good writing. And what, what amazes me most about Annie's writing is that she's an intellectual committed to pursuing ideas, but she has the eye of a great reporter. 
And so she's interested in stories and using stories to, uh, to, to talk about the ideas that she's pursuing. And it's a story that got me to the lecture that I want to uh, deliver here today. Uh, it's a story that first caught my eye when I began this book project on the laws of war in American history. Uh, and you'll understand why it caught my eye when I tell you that it's a story about a law professor. Now, uh, uh, law professors don't usually find their way into great stories, but this one did. Uh, his name was Francis Lieber. Uh, and 150 years ago this fall, he gave a lecture in a hall about the size as this one, same size as this one, uh, in the old Historical Society building in Manhattan at 2nd Avenue and 11th Street. It is seasonable to discuss the laws of war, he announced to his audience, because we live in the midst of it. For two hours, Lieber took his students at the new law school at Columbia College, along with an assorted, assorted group of observers and members of the press, on an epic tour of the long and troubled history of the laws of, of international, the, the international laws of war. He reviewed customs for the treatment of prisoners, the distinction between soldiers and non-combatants, and the use of tactics such as poison and assassination. The lectures were long and rambling, as was Lieber's want, but they lived up to the wildest dreams of its, of its author. For the next four months, the rest of the winter term, Lieber's lectures were carried in the New York Times, reprinted in newspapers around the country. The lectures caught the attention of Secretary of War Edwin Stanton and renewed Lieber's friendship with Henry Halleck, soon to be Abraham Lincoln's general in chief. At the end of 1862, Stanton and Halleck turned to Lieber to write a code of instructions on behalf of the president, a code that would restate the international usages and law of war. In May 1863, Lincoln issued that code as General Orders Number 100 of the Union Army. The code quickly spread around the world. International lawyers translated it. European states copied it in field manuals. Its basic outlines were written into the great treaties of the laws of war signed in The, in the Hague at, in 19, 1899 and 1907. The code's traces are still visible in the Geneva Conventions of 1949. Now, understanding how the ideas first floated on Manhattan's 2nd Avenue in October of 1861 turned into the modern laws of war has proven to be an extraordinarily difficult challenge uh, for historians and international lawyers. Laws of war typically arise after, in the aftershock of combat, not uh, in the impassioned heat of battle. But the code Lieber drafted emerged amidst a war that was the harbinger of modern war in its mass destructive scale. Indeed, Lincoln issued the rules at the very moment in which he was abandoning the limited war policies of the war's first year for what William Tecumseh Sherman would later call the hard hand of war. Lieber's role further scrambles the puzzle. The code was not drafted by one of the many American statesmen whom, as we shall see, had long argued for tighter limits and tighter constraints on war. Instead, it was assembled by a Prussian immigrant, an early student of Karl von Clausewitz, the 19th century's prophet of total war, Lieber himself was no mawkish sentimentalist or sickly philanthropist, as he liked to say, or believer in what he a little too scathingly disparaged as namby-pambyism. To be sure, Lieber had taught for 20 years at the College of South Carolina. He had sons on both sides of the war. One was killed and another lost an arm in the months before he drafted his code. Lieber was thus exquisitely attuned to the humanitarian toll of the conflict, yet the man who helped create the modern laws of war, urged blow after blow against the South, and hoped fervently that the Union armies would strike the enemy with the greatest possible force. The more vigorously wars are pursued, Lieber wrote in the code, the better it is for humanity. 
It was not lost on Jefferson Davis or on the Confederacy that the code authorized more violence than the leading antebellum authorities on international law. Existing accounts of the beginnings of today's international law do not make sense of the anomalies of its origins. Some hopefully cite the humanitarianism of the time, but the fierceness of the code belies this explanation. Others try to root the code in what is said to be the characteristic legalism of the United States, but this view offers no explanation of why it was the Civil War rather than the Mexican War or the War of 1812 that produced such a document. Nor does the legalism view grapple with the long and bitter controversies in antebellum America over the very idea of an international law of war. Still others try to explain the code by looking to the benefits of reciprocity among enemies in modern warfare. But this theory runs headlong into the fact that it was at the very moment the code was issued that cooperation and prisoner exchanges broke down irretrievably between North and South. Parts of better answers might be located in the sociology of the 19th century, of the, of the sociology of the 19th century uh, military, the advent of mass armies, and uh, mass literate armies in particular, or in a 19th century culture that was alternately fascinated and horrified by combat might also be located in the rise of the war correspondent or the beginnings of the telegraph. But these are still insufficient answers. Why the United States? Why the Civil War? Why would the code come out of a conflict in which the official position of the United States remained from beginning to end that Confederates were criminals engaged in treason? Today, I'll try to persuade you that a solution to this puzzle in the history of the laws of war has been hiding in plain sight. The code, the beginnings of our modern law of war tradition, was rooted in the imperatives of Lincoln's Emancipation Project. Known for a century as Lieber's Code, General Orders Number 100 was as much Lincoln's as Lieber's, for it was bound up in the wrenching transformation of American politics and American law achieved by Lincoln and by the 200,000 black men who served in the Union Armed Forces during the war. But if the account that I provide here begins to make some sense of the code, it will also create new ambiguities for the historical roots of today's laws of war. Connecting the laws of war to emancipation lays bare the unstable foundation of modern humanitarian law. It also, I'll try to suggest, has something to teach us about the limits of emancipation. Our story begins to come into focus if we observe that from the, the War of Independence onward, American statesmen had argued that to fight a civilized war was to rule out the freeing of slaves. Early American statecraft, adopted the leading edge of the 18th century's international laws of war. The Enlightenment model of limited war was embedded in the Declaration of Independence. Washington's correspondence with his counterparts embodied its basic commitments. The founders wrote its terms into their early diplomacy. Neutral rights at sea became the quintessential American expression of the limited war paradigm. And for decades, the laws of war were a staple of Republican politics. American statesmen, developed an especially distinctive tradition with respect to private property in wartime. The leading European jurists of the 18th century had treated the capture of private enemy property as discouraged but permissible. From the days of the founders, however, American statesmen embraced the European literature's aspirations toward a much more protective rule for private property on land. Franklin and Jefferson drafted treaties that immunized virtually all economically productive private property. Chief Justice John Marshall moved the law in the same direction, tentatively at first and then more decisively late in his tenure. The first generation of American treatises on international law adopted much the same view. With no standing army to speak of and no navy, 
perhaps it should be no surprise that the jurists and statesmen of the early republic stood at the forefront of the project of establishing limits on the destructive capacity of war. As commentators have long pointed out, the United States was a weak and a young state. But the United States was not just a weak state, it was not just a young state, the United States was also a slave state. And here lies one of the strangest juxtapositions in the American history of the laws of war. In an innovation that no 18th century jurist had anticipated, American statesmen mobilized their United States rule on private property most forcefully and most frequently in defense of property and slaves. The history here reached back to the revolution. Between 1775 and 1783, 100,000 slaves, a fifth of the North American slave population, made their way to British camps and served as soldiers, guides, pilots, and laborers. 30,000 fled from the plantations of Virginia alone, 30 of Thomas Jefferson's 200 slaves among them. The War of 1812 replayed the events of the War of Independence. By the end of the war, thousands of slaves from Virginia and Maryland had escaped to British vessels. The problem of slavery, in a, in a, the problem of war, of war in a slave society sent tremors through the slaveholder class and produced a distinctive American view of, of, of the law of slavery, of, of slavery and the laws of war. Jefferson's declaration accused the king of war atrocities for having excited domestic insurrections. And at the end of the War of Independence, Henry Lawrence of South Carolina negotiated a provision protecting private property, including slaves, in the peace treaty signed in Paris. Led by Virginians Washington and Jefferson, American statesmen raised a loud chorus of bitter complaints when the British nonetheless evacuated thousands of former slaves in 1783. Southern slaveholders never forgave John Jay when the Jay Treaty of 1794 failed to win compensation from the British, essentially foreclosing the issue for good. Slaveholders' lingering bitterness was not lost on the politically ambitious John Quincy Adams who as the principal American peace negotiator in the War of 1812 tried his best to make the peace contingent on the return of American slaves. Slaves, he said, who by the usages of war among civilized nations ought not to have been taken. For over a decade, through his tenure as Secretary of State and his one term as President, Adams pursued compensation from the British on the grounds that they had violated the laws of war and the terms of the peace treaty. The core propositions Adams defended in the controversy were that private property on land was immune from capture in wartime and that slaves were private property. If freeing slaves was permissible in warfare, Adams reasoned, then a state might just as well claim the right of putting to death all prisoners in cold blood or the right to use poisoned weapons or to assassinate. In American statecraft, the protection of slavery had become one of the crucial tests of an enemy's commitment to civilized limits on the conduct of war. In part, this was because slaves were not merely a form of property. Just beneath the surface of slaveholders' ostensible commitment to the docile nature of the slave lay fears that wartime emancipations might unleash violent uprisings and servile insurrections. Writers like Locke and Grotius had long described slavery as a state of suppressed warfare, and events like the bloody Haitian Revolution and domestic slave revolts like Nat Turner's Rebellion in 1831 provided fresh reminders that under the right conditions, Slavery's suspended war might erupt quickly into the kind of violence that no laws of warfare could hope to contain. From this vantage point, I think we can understand that the Confederacy's official approach to the laws of war in the beginning of 1861 was completely ordinary in American history. In the early weeks of the war, the Confederacy adopted all the quintessentially American law of war principles, both at sea and on land. 
It issued letters of mark, created a protective regime for enemy private property, and announced its commitment more generally to a law of war for which its, for which its leaders were eager to qualify. But the South was not alone in adopting the Founders' International Law. Major General George McClellan, the increasingly truculent commander of the Army of the Potomac, was the Civil War's most famous embodiment of the Founders' Laws of War. And on July 7, 1862, after the gruesome Seven Days Battles on the Virginia Peninsula, Abraham Lincoln traveled to Harrison's Landing on the James River to meet in person with his slow-moving general. McClellan greeted him with what has, become, what has come to be known as the Harrison's Landing Letter. The Harrison's Landing Letter was a perfect embodiment of the American orthodoxy on the laws of war. The conflict, McClellan wrote to Lincoln, should be conducted upon the highest principles known to Christian civilization. What this meant was self-evident to someone like McClellan, who had paid attention to the law of war training at West Point, meager though it was. It meant that the war should not be, McClellan's language, should not be a war looking to the subjugation of a people, not at all a war upon population, but exclusively a war against armed forces. More importantly, neither confiscation of property nor the forcible abolition of slavery should be contemplated for a moment. From across the North, voices like McClellan's cautioned Lincoln against making war on slavery for fear that such a war would set off exactly the kinds of consequences Southerners had worried about since 1775. Lincoln's own, own attorney general, Edward Bates of Missouri, warned the president of the risks of social and servile war. The New York Herald anticipated a protracted and desolating war of sections, factions, and races. A newspaper in eastern Pennsylvania captured the ugly views of many across the North when it wrote that unloosing the bonds of four million slaves would set them against the Caucasian race to murder, pillage, and destroy until their barbarous appetites might be appeased. Many European observers shared, their, shared these fears, and their concerns were only heightened by the importance of Southern cotton in the textile markets of Lancashire and Marseille. In an England that was not yet five years removed from the massacres of the Indian Mutiny, the London Times predicted that in the event of emancipation, the whole American nation would be flung as a holocaust upon the shrine of emancipation. Now, one of the striking features of the problem Lincoln faced was that in slavery and the laws of war, two of the 19th century's principal measures of moral progress had come apart. For almost a century, slavery and uncontrolled excesses in war had come to seem twin relics of barbarism. Emancipation and the limitation of war, by contrast, were markers of the moral progress of the age. From the founding era onward, however, American statesmen had inverted the linkage between anti-slavery and the legal limits on war. The American account of the laws of war characterized those laws as indicators of progress precisely insofar as they protected the backward institution of slavery. Historians of slavery and anti-slavery have long noted that Southern pro-slavery propagandists in the 1850s would point to the miseries of factory labor to redescribe slavery as a guarantor of moral progress in the, modern, in the modern age. It's my teacher, David Brian Davis, who taught me everything I know on this score. But decades earlier, Jefferson and the younger Adams had managed to commit the United States to a law of war that stood for much the same idea, a law that seemed to stand at the leading edge of civilization precisely because it guaranteed slavery. If Lincoln was to take on slavery in the South then, his burden was not merely to overturn the long-standing tradition of American statecraft on the question of wartime emancipations. 
he seemed to need to realign the laws of civilized warfare with the moral progress of slavery's abolition. Now, the association of slavery and barbarism offered an unexpected way to do this. For if one thing was clear, it was that the laws of civilized warfare were inapplicable in conflicts with savages or barbarians. John Stuart Mill had said much the same thing in a different context on the eve of the war. And with the war underway, Mill's friend John Eliot Cairns, a distinguished professor of jurisprudence and political economy uh, at Queens College Galway, developed the natural implications. If slaveholding was a form of barbarism, then why should the laws of war bind those who fought against the atavistic slavemongers of the South? Cairns's book was instantly reprinted in the United States and it garnered widespread interest. Lincoln himself referenced the same idea when he proposed a resolution for English supporters of the Union cause, a resolution that echoed Cairns and Mill. Lincoln resolved that no state founded on human slavery should ever be recognized by the family of Christian and civilized nations. Lincoln's main interest here was to hold off English recognition of the Confederacy as a state. But his careful choice of words suggested a further step, refusing recognition not just as a state in the international law sense, but as a civilized state, as a member of the family of civilized nations entitled to the rules that attached in even the most violent of family squabbles. As a theoretical matter, treating the South as a barbarous state not entitled to the laws of war was intriguing, but in practice, it was impossible. Lincoln well knew that thousands of his soldiers were held as prisoners by an enemy who had already threatened to retaliate if the United States decided that the Confederacy was not entitled to the benefits of the laws of war. Lincoln would need a different way to pursue emancipation. And by the summer of 1862, there had already been a good deal of chatter in the North revising the long-standing position on Amer in American statecraft on the laws of war and slavery. There were also precedents in American history for locating an emancipation power in the international laws of war, though these precedents ran against the dominant grain. Paradoxically, it was John Quincy Adams who had provided the most lucid arguments, although also the most problematic given his earlier position in, on, uh, in defense of this, of this point. In the second half of his career, now as a senior statesman in the House of Representatives in the 1830s and 1840s, Adams had reversed course and adopted a position diametrically opposed to the one he had taken 20 or 30 years before. In opposition to the so-called gag rule, banning anti-slavery petitions on the floor of Congress, Adams had argued that the federal government did have a power over slavery. It was the war power rooted and bounded by the international laws of war. Lincoln had begun the war holding the more conventional American view on the laws of war and slavery. But returning from his worrisome confrontation with McClellan at Harrison's Landing, he had a change of mind. Gathering his cabinet, Lincoln set in motion one of the most famous sequences in American history. He proposed to order and declare as a fit and necessary military measure that all slaves in the rebellious states thenceforward and forever be free. After the Union's dismal victory at Antietam in September, Lincoln publicly announced his intent to issue an emancipation order on January 1st. The final Emancipation Proclamation adopted the international law of war as its justification. Its famous last paragraph set forth its basis. This act, sincerely believed to be an act of justice, warranted by the Constitution upon military necessity. As Lincoln put it in a letter to a friend, the Constitution invests its commander-in-chief with the law of war. Lincoln's new position 
did little, however, to counter almost a century of statecraft and jurisprudence on what purported to be the cutting edge of civilized rules for war. Confederate statesmen fairly burst with righteous fury. A week after Lincoln's announcement in September 1862, members of the Confederate Senate introduced bills that would have treated Union officers as agitators, inciting slaves to rebellion, and thus as criminals, not soldiers. Critics in the North had similar reactions. In Lincoln's old haunts of Springfield, Illinois, Democrats accused him of unloosing the lusts of freed Negroes who will overrun our country. Former Supreme Court Justice Benjamin Curtis conjured up scenes of bloodshed and worse than bloodshed. Similar nightmarish stories raced through the salons of Britain and France in the winter of 1862-63, creating speculation that the threatened terrors of, terrors of emancipation might lead the two European states to recognize the South and impose a mediated peace. All of this put enormous pressure on the Lincoln administration as January 1863 neared. And once the administration finished drafting its uh, annual message to Congress in early December, Lincoln's Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, and his General-in-Chief, Henry Halleck, telegraphed Francis Lieber in New York and asked him to come rapidly to Washington. Several disputes over the conduct of the war were badly in need of legal clarification in December 1862. There were grave issues involving the status of guerrilla fighters in places like Missouri. There were problematic issues arising out of the confiscation of property in places like the Shenandoah Valley. There were difficult questions arising out of the enforcement of the Confiscation Act, second Con Confiscation Act enacted by Congress in July 1862. Judge Advocate General Joseph Holt was, reach was reaching out to Lieber at the same time for guidance on problems arising in the prosecution of Confederate guerrillas and Confederate spies. But as Lieber rushed down to Washington to draft what became General Orders Number 100, the problem of slavery came to the fore. Rumors began to fly around Washington that the Confederacy was selling into slavery black freemen captured alongside Union forces. The Senate cited these rumors to demand that the War Department provide a response. Jefferson Davis issued a proclamation excoriating the impending Emancipation Proclamation and ordering that armed Negro slaves and the commissioned officers found serving with them be treated as criminals and delivered to state authorities for prosecution. Davis repeated his retaliation plan in January and at the same time, news reports reached the North that Confederate soldiers had begun to execute black Teamsters accompanying, accompanying Union troops. Lieber's views on emancipation were well known to Lincoln and his close circle of advisors. His Columbia lectures, published in the Times, had concluded in March with a ringing declaration that slavery was outside the protections of the laws of war. To his frequent correspondent and friend Charles Sumner, the powerful chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and a close confidant of Lincoln's, Lieber wrote that Negroes coming into our lines must be and are in fact free men. Let us free in actual war as many Negroes as come to us as we can, he told Sumner in 1862. And in June, at the request of Attorney General Bates, Lieber published an open letter endorsing the emancipatory power of the laws of war. In August, Lincoln and Stanton met personally with Lieber and asked him to prepare a report on the military use of colored persons. And in late November, Lieber told Sumner in no uncertain terms that the sale of uh, colored Union soldiers into slavery would be a violation of the laws of war. No wonder then that Halleck expanded the scope of Lieber's project radically in late December. For the next six weeks, almost unassisted, Lieber put together a distillation of the customs and traditions that made up the international laws of war. 
the code included powerful sections on slavery. It announced that slavery existed according to the municipal law or local law only, not international law, and that a slave captured by American forces was thus immediately entitled to the rights and privileges of a free man. As to prisoners of war, the code announced that the law of nations knows no distinction of color and that therefore no belligerent has a right to declare that enemies of a certain class, color, or condition would not be treated as public soldiers. If an enemy of the United States were to enslave and sell any captured soldiers, the laws of war, Lieber wrote, authorized the severest retaliation, including death for prisoners from the enemy's army. The editing process by a committee of Union officers left Lieber's first draft almost entirely untouched. But Halleck carefully reviewed the slavery sections. He removed some of Lieber's strongest claims, apparently on the ground that they might cause undue embarrassment given the long history of American statecraft on the issue. And in order to be certain that the code got its message across, Halleck added a clause asserting that the laws of war afford afforded no post-war claim on the services of slaves freed in wartime. Like Halleck, most readers of the early committee print of the code also concentrated their responses on the slavery provisions. And when the spectacularly named Brigadier General Napoleon Bonaparte Beaufort received his copy of the early committee print, it was the slavery provisions that he arranged prematurely to publish in the Chicago Tribune, uh, confident that uh, they would be read there by most of the army of the West. Lieber himself singled out the slavery sections. I am most pleased, he wrote Sumner, with my passages on slavery. Now Lieber may have been pleased with his passages on slavery, but his critics were not. The New York Herald attacked the slavery passages as a complete fallacy and cited Adams's position after the War of 1812 as the true rule. The anti-Lincoln New York world in New York savaged the same passages. Confederate Secretary of War James Seddon called the slavery code slavery articles a specimen of pedantic impertinence without a parallel. It was, he protested, part of a Union project of adding to the calamities of the war, a servile insurrection that would rouse the savage passions and brutal appetites of a barbarous race. Such a war, Seddon concluded, entailed the abandonment of all rules, conventions, mitigating usages, and humanizing influences. It would be a war of mutual extermination. Now, you would never guess it from the international law literature on Lieber's Code, which is full of encomiums, but historians have long doubted that the significance uh, have long doubted the significance of the code in the Civil War itself. They have typically viewed it as either an irrelevant lawyer's sideshow or, at worst, a moral cloak that permitted the expansion of the war into civilian life. Halleck lent some credence to these views when he told his officers that although the instructions had been carefully considered, they were nonetheless very imperfect. As Sherman marched to the sea, in 1864, he gave no impression that he consulted the code along the way, although it's not clear that he would have had to change his conduct if he had. But historians have been looking in the wrong place for the significance of the code. The code, for example, provided the legal foundations for hundreds, perhaps even thousands, of military commissions trying guerrillas and spies and others. It guided some of the Union's policies on nice questions in the treatment of prisoners of war. Its most important functions arose out of the imperatives of emancipation. From the moment Lincoln first raised emancipation in July 1862, his closest and most supportive advisors concentrated on how to advance emancipation while dispelling concerns about the kinds of bloody and indiscriminate slave insurrection that some feared. Lincoln's Treasury Secretary Salmon Chase 
warned that emancipation would have to be implemented in such a way as to avoid depredation and massacre. Lincoln took these concerns seriously. In his final proclamation on January 1st, he enjoined freed people to abstain from all violence unless in self-defense, to emphasize the point and to make, to make emancipation safe for modern warfare. Lincoln's proclamation recommended that free men labor faithfully for wages. A year later, Lincoln would proudly report that no servile insurrection or tendency to violence or cruelty had marred emancipation. Commissioned just weeks before the Emancipation Proclamation was to be issued, the code, like the cautious proclamation itself, aimed to allay fears that emancipation inevitably meant a bitter war of, an, of servile insurrection. The code publicly committed the Union to fighting a war within civilized limits, even as it helped expand the war effort. Moreover, the code's terms formally put off limits the kinds of uprisings that so many feared. War, Lieber wrote, was a legal state that applied only to organized units. Prisoner of war status extended only to combatants properly organized as soldiers. And so that there could be no mistake, the code provided that if the people of a country already occupied by an army rise against it, they are violators of the laws of war and are not entitled to its protection. Now, these were passages that applied to guerrilla warfare by Confederate sympathizers in places like Missouri, but they had equal application to slave rebellion. In no uncertain terms, the code had made clear that Lincoln and the Union would not stand behind an uprising and demand that insurrectionists receive the treatment afforded to legitimate combatants. New York lawyer and future Secretary of State Hamilton Fish understood this, uh, understood this very well and thought the code's approach superior to the Emancipation Proclamation on precisely these grounds. The code, he wrote, did not afford what he called the Southerners of the North an opportunity to attack Lincoln for stirring up internal rebellions. Arming former slaves and mustering them into commissioned regiments, however, was a diff different question altogether. Even as Lieber was drafting the code, organized black soldiers were changing the meaning of the war effort, and this too created a powerful need for new guidance from the laws of war. As late as the summer of 1862, Lincoln had ruled out enlisting black regiments, but pressure to do just that was mounting, not the least because many black men were eager to take up the cause. And on August 25th, Secretary Stanton took the momentous step of authorizing the military governor of the South Carolina Sea Islands to, or, to raise regiments of black troops with white men as their officers. In November, the first South Carolina volunteers with the abolitionist Thomas Wentworth Higginson at their head began raiding up the rivers of Georgia and Florida. Starting in January, the second South Carolina volunteers joined the first and the two regiments of black soldiers began raiding in the interior of the Deep South, bringing word of the Emancipation Proclamation with them. Positive reports of their conduct ushered in the rapid enlistment of tens of thousands of, of blacks into the Union Army, and by March, Lincoln was writing that he hoped that the bare sight of 50,000 armed, armed and drilled black soldiers upon the banks of the Mississippi would end the rebellion at once. Two months later, the War Department created a Bureau of Colored Troops. Stanton and Lincoln were thus transforming the strategy of black enlistment and creating it in precisely the weeks when Stanton called on Lieber to prepare the code. As soon as the code was issued, Major General David Hunter sent it to the officers of the <coughs> crucial South Carolina black regiments, urging it on them as especially important for the employment of colored troops so as to avoid grounds for recriminations by the South or outrage by European observers. The introduction of black soldiers also created especially thorny issues for, for prisoner exchange. In January, 
Secretary Stanton had assured those forming black regiments that the government would defend to the last dollar and the last man the rights, privileges, and immunities of civilized warfare for black soldiers. They will be soldiers of the Union, Stanton had said, nothing less and nothing different. When Lincoln issued the code in May, the Union officer for prisoner exchanges handed it to his Confederate counterpart in Virginia and announced that it would be the basis for prisoner paroles and exchanges for the rest of the war. The passages on black, black soldiers were critically important here. As we have seen, the code announced that international law authorized the execution of Confederate prisoners in retaliation for, their for the enslavement or execution of black soldiers. And on July 31st, partly in response to increasing pressure from the now vitally important free black community, Lincoln issued a retaliation order pursuant to the authority identified by the code. Lincoln's July 1863 retaliation order tracked the language of the code almost perfectly. Drafted for Lincoln in Stanton's War Department by someone who almost certainly had the text of the code before him, the order denied enemies the right to declare as illegal any public soldier on the basis of class, color, or condition, precisely the language Lieber had used in the code, and insisted that the law of nations permitted no distinction of color. Again, the same language. To sell or enslave a captured person was what the code and the July retaliation order called a relapse into barbarism. Lincoln didn't exercise all the authority that Lieber's code afforded. He stopped short of ordering executions in retaliation for enslavement, providing simply that for every soldier enslaved, one rebel, re, one rebel soldier would be put to hard labor. Black soldiers and the free black community of the North were never satisfied that the Union saw its retaliation policy through, and with good reason. Internal correspondence among Confederate officers shows that all too often, they carried out the grim work of putting black soldiers to death. But Lincoln himself never oversaw retaliation for this, and his commanders in the field only employed the retaliation he authorized in an ad hoc and scattered manner. Nevertheless, the code's retaliation provisions and Lincoln's retaliation order had much of their intended effect. After July 1863, the Confederate government retreated from its strong initial position and discouraged formal public proceedings against black soldiers as criminals in order to minimize the risk of northern retaliation. Occasionally, episodes of indiscriminate execution reached the northern public. In April 1864, for example, Confederates under Nathan Bedford Forrest engaged in an infamous massacre of black soldiers at Fort Pillow. Union officers directed attention to the code once again. Major General Cadwallader Washburn of the Union's Western District of Tennessee sent a copy of General Orders Number 100 to Forrest. As Washburn wrote sternly, he sent the order that you may know what the laws of war are. A candid world, Washburn concluded, would judge Forrest's conduct. We're now in a position, I think, to begin to answer the question of why Lincoln issued a code condensing the international law limits on warfare in the midst of the Civil War. Against the background of almost 90 years of defenses of slavery through the laws of war, Lincoln turned to the code to solve the array of problems that arose out of emancipation and the arming of black soldiers. The document drew heavily on two centuries of treatises and treaties, but the race and slavery provisions were strikingly novel to the laws of war, invented almost from whole cloth. It was these passages that garnered the principal attention upon their publication, and it was these passages that did much of the code's work out in the field. But if emancipation and the enlistment of black soldiers offer the beginnings of a solution to our puzzle, it's a solution that only takes us so far. 
it leaves unanswered the question of why international lawyers picked up the, the code from the Civil War so rapidly and turned it so successfully into the inspiration and basis for the laws of war as we know them today. No doubt some of this was due to Lieber's personal connections, to the new European professional class of international lawyers. Lieber carried on a correspondence with jurists around the world and wasn't shy about urging his code upon them. No doubt the post-war success of the code also owes some of its, uh, some of its uh, success to the connection with the Union victory. Had the Confederacy crafted such a document, which it did not, it's hard to imagine that a Southern alternative could have enjoyed such a reception after the years of, uh, after, uh, in the years after Appomattox Courthouse. We might also be able to explain some of the code's success in Europe by its faithful reproduction of the Eurocentric perspective of 19th century international law, the same perspective that Mill and Cairns had drawn on. The code contained the fundamental distinction between civilized and barbarian nations. In fact, these were the passages that Robert read to you at the outset. Lieber himself thought that the human species was divided into sharply delineated races with inborn traits of temperament, character, and intelligence. Races, he liked to say, were a powerful illustration of what he chauvinistically called the peach blossom principle. Many fell to the ground for one that ripened into a fruit. But in the end, it's difficult, I think, to explain the diffusion of the code in the years after the war by reference to its content, even when its content pandered. If anything, the content of the code inhibited its spread, and this points us towards the deep tension at the heart of the international laws of war. The approach to the laws of war that Lieber wrote into the code cut against the emerging structure of the modern laws of war, a structure that early American statesmen had so readily adopted. Since the 18th century, the laws of war had been committed to setting the justice of a war itself to one side in order to regulate the conduct of armies in combat. This is true of our laws of war today. The laws of war work when they work by treating as moral equals enemies firmly believed to be moral abominations. That's why the prisoner of war is not a criminal, even when he's engaged in an unjust war. Setting justice aside underwrites the elaborate array of hard and fast rules in the modern humanitarian law regime. In the Middle Ages, the law of just wars relied on a very different approach, the standard of military necessity to govern the conduct of armed forces in battle. Armies under this approach could do all that necessity required and only what necessity required in pursuit of legitimate war aims. Modern authorities on the laws of war by contrast have tried their best to minimize the military necessity standard in the laws of war. Because in each application, the necessity standard reintroduces the dangerous question of the war's justice. It tethers the legal limits on conduct to the legitimacy of its ends. If, however, justice was to be bracketed for purposes of regulating the conduct of war, as it was for the United States' favorite early international lawyer, the stylish Swiss diplomat and writer Vattel, then the law would need to leave behind the necessity standard that rested so heavily on the just war inquiry. It would have to develop an array of destruction limiting rules that could be applied without reference to the justice of the cause in question. Emancipation, of course, forced justice and humanity back together. Emancipation was, as Lincoln called it, an act of justice that asserted the moral superiority of the Union. In turn, the code Lieber wrote for Lincoln rejected the hard and fast rules of jurists like Vattel and embraced instead the throwback of military necessity. Military necessity, the code instructed, admits of all, all direct destruction of life or limb of armed enemies or of other persons whose destruction is incidentally unavoidable in the armed contest of war. 
Lieber described only a few narrow things as per se impermissible, perfidy or breaking agreements, torture to extract confessions, the use of poisons, and the violation of truce flags. And we know from Lieber's lectures at Columbia that left to his own devices, there would have been even fewer per se impermissible uh, uh, acts in wartime. Some of this reflected Lieber's own fierce embrace of harsh measures. Using his favorite term of contempt, he scornfully called Vettel father namby-pamby. His admiration for Clausewitz led him to include in the code the Clausewitzian idea that war was not its own end, but the means to obtain, means to obtain great ends of state. The code contained ideas more closely associated with realists like Clausewitz, Machiavelli, and Frederick the Great than idealists and lawyers like Hugo Grotius, Vettel, and Immanuel Kant. Though he didn't entirely share the view, Lieber viewed with appreciation critiques of international law as what he called a vain phantom in a world of powerful interests. As Lieber's old friend Halleck well knew, Lieber's inclinations were very useful to the Union in December 1862. The code shifted away from prohibitory rules such as the bans on confiscating slaves and, and uh, uh, confiscating private property and emancipating slaves. Lieber was deeply reluctant to embrace thou shalt nots in the laws of war. He was also gravely concerned about the use of retaliation to enforce the laws of war. Retaliation, he worried, all too often touched off uncontrollable spirals of destructive violence. And at its heart, the law of war for Lieber was not a scheme of fixed rules about permissible and impermissible means, a scheme that excluded ends-based reasoning in particular cases. Nor was it best thought of as a system of rules matched with retaliatory enforcement mechanisms. Rather, the laws of war as Lieber understood them consisted of guidelines for moral judgment that authorized cautious reference to the just ends that the Civil War had taken on in the fall and winter of 1862-63. Lieber's laws of war, we might say, were a practical guide to the art of moral judgment in excruciating circumstances. Men who take up arms against one another in public war, Lieber wrote in one of the Code's first articles, do not cease on this account to be moral beings responsible to one another and to God. In the end, the code became influential in international law outside the United States, not because of its content, but because of its genre. For centuries, the laws of war had been collected in multi-volume treatises written for the jurist in his study. Lieber, by contrast, wrote a pamphlet-style manual for officers in the field. This was the format for the future, the forerunner to the wallet cards carried by soldiers in our own time. The content of the code, however, brings us face to face with the great tension at the heart of the laws of war. The compromise of setting justice aside has always been a difficult one. For one thing, the basic necessity standard always lies in the background, lurking in the gaps between the hard and fast rules Vattel created. For another, setting aside questions about just ends is something that many, Lieber and Lincoln included, have not been willing to do, and sometimes for humanitarian reasons. In retreating from the elaborate system of rules of modern international law orthodoxy, Lincoln and Lieber laid bare the deep ambivalence over this compromise that lies at the heart of the laws of war. Abraham Lincoln never elaborated a full-length treatment of his views of the laws of war, but he seems to have shared Lieber's sensibility. Like Lieber, he shied away from the terrible effects of retaliation. And when he did write about the laws of war, Lieber, Lincoln reproduced the general spirit of orders number 100. Lincoln explained that under the laws of war, civilized belligerents do all in their power to hurt the enemy with the exception of a few things regarded as barbarous or cruel. Historians observe, have observed that in this, Lincoln was adopting language he found in the writings of a relatively obscure 18th century jurist. What historians have less often noticed 
is that Lincoln had just overseen the creation of a document in the laws of war that adopted precisely the same perspective. That document is today usually called Lieber's Code, but it's called Lieber's Code in part for the purpose of disassociating the code from the Civil War's destructive campaigns and emancipation's powerful and dangerous injection of a justice project into a humanitarian law code. Calling General Orders Number 100 the Lieber Code associates it instead with the early professionalization of international law. When the newspapers picked up the order in late May 1863, however, they ascribed it not just to Lieber, under, but, but to the president under whose authority it had been issued. And we should do the same, I think. We understand the political and legal significance of General Orders Number 100 better if we think of it as Lincoln's code. Now there's an irony in this. In the code, Lincoln conjoined the forward-looking moral clarity of emancipation with the backward-looking legal strategy of necessity. And in this he'd done what the founders had done before him, which was to separate the moral progress of the cutting edge technology of the hard and fast laws of the hard and fast rules of the laws of civilized warfare from the moral progress of anti-slavery and the emancipation project. The founders had embraced Vattel and jettisoned anti-slavery. Lincoln, by contrast, embraced anti-slavery and set aside Vattel's method for limiting war's destruction, a method that had come to seem the very essence of moral progress in war. Now this is not to say for a minute that Lincoln or Lieber eschewed limits altogether. It is to say that they eschewed limits, the kinds of limits characteristic of the modern laws of war, limits that aim to regulate warfare by constraints on means that operate without regard to ends. But moral limits and legal limits remained. In fact, if we look closely, we can see that Lincoln's attention to the moral imperatives of the laws of war put deep, though rarely visible, and not entirely happy constraints on the conduct of the Civil War. In the past half century, historians have come to understand the contribution that black soldiers made in the fight for racial equality. The Union commitment to the legal equality of soldiers under the laws of war, a commitment laid down in the code, was an early victory in this campaign. But the laws of war also brought limits. To allay concerns about destructive warfare, Lincoln's proclamation, as we have seen, urged slaves to work faithfully for wages, and in this, the proclamation anticipated the forms of contractual exploitation that the post-war South would hold for the free people. Invoking the law of war helped slay the apparition of servile insurrection, but it did so at the cost of setting boundaries on the kinds of freedom that emancipation promised. When Francis Lieber stood to deliver his lectures in the fall of 1861, he did so with a foreboding sense that warfare and law in his time were in a moment of transformation. Our era, he told his audience, had suddenly entered a time of violence after a long period marked not only by peace, but by attempts to make war illegal altogether. Now in our time, especially in the past 10 years, the problem of, of elaborating limits for another moment of transformation in war has once again, once again become especially salient. And for a decade, observers of virtually every ideological stripe have either seen the post 9-11 problems or our responses to them as unprecedented. Some see a sudden rupture in a long American tradition of American respect for international law and its laws of war. Others protest what they see as new constraints that international law has placed on the war decisions of the government. In truth, we've been grappling with variations on the same dilemmas with which Lincoln and Lieber found themselves struggling a century and a half ago. Lincoln's code and the moral problems it embodied help explain the hotly contested cultural space of the laws of war today. Why should we expect anything else? 
when the conceptual and historical foundations of the laws of war are so unsettled. Lincoln's laws of war, like Lieber's, was at bottom a public language for talking about means and ends in, a, in, in some of the most wrenching moral problems of the age. And in this, Lincoln's law is our law too. Thank you very much for listening to me. Thanks.